Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Heart failure is a leading cause of hospital admissions, and there are striking racial disparities in its incidence. Black men and black women die of heart failure at rates about 50% higher than white men and white women, respectively. The American Heart Association notes that the ability to properly manage heart failure is significantly affected by the social determinants of health, and the cost of treatment are often a barrier to receiving proper care. What is the cost of racial and ethnic disparities in heart failure, and what can we do about those disparities? That's the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Andrew Anderson, Assistant Professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. Dr. Anderson and colleagues published a paper in the May 2023 issue of Health Affairs assessing financial costs associated with disparities in preventable heart failure hospitalizations among Medicare beneficiaries in the U.S. South. They found significant disparities in preventable heart failure hospitalizations between Black, Hispanic, American Indian, Alaska Native beneficiaries, and white beneficiaries, with tens of millions of dollars of costs each year associated with these disparities just in the South. We'll discuss these findings in today's episode. Dr. Anderson, welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me to do this. I'm excited for the conversation. I'm looking forward to learning more about this subject with you. Let's start with just sort of the motivation for the study. You focused on racial and ethnic disparities related to heart failure. Why did you select uh, this condition as the focus of your work? Yeah, so first I would just say this work is kind of couched in a broader literature on cost of illness, uh, but you know, there's been far fewer studies that have been focused on cost of illness related to disparities, and we know that the United States spends tons of money on health services, but the overarching question here is how much would we save if we could use this for other purposes, if we eliminated racial and ethnic disparities? Um, so, and then there's been lots of studies, you know, before this that have looked at disparities that have cost billions of dollars in lost productivity, lost of lives, direct medical cost. And so the reason why we specifically focused on heart failure uh, admissions, uh, preventable admissions, is because of the disproportionate uh, mortality among Black Americans. Um, in 2017, I think it was around one and a half times in the South and throughout the United States. It's also a leading cause of uh, admissions and readmissions, which is also extremely costly. Nearly two-thirds of the annual per patient cost for heart failure is actually driven by hospital admissions. And so the main, main aim of this paper was to you know, try to describe the, the costs associated with disparities between Black and white Medicare beneficiaries. But we also looked at the differences for um, Hispanic Americans, uh, Asian American, and Pacific Islander, as well as uh, American Indian and Alaska Native populations. Yeah, we'll get into those findings as we go along. So this is a, a, a high cost, high burden, and high disparity illness. You looked at preventable heart failure hospitalizations. Now, that's a concept that maybe isn't immediately intuitive to people. Uh, when is a hospitalization preventable, and uh, how do we think about that in terms of interpreting your results? Yeah, so the short answer to that question is that these are unscheduled admissions that are not due to a transfer from another facility or for a cardiac procedure, which would be probably the most uh, of the admissions. A lot of them are actually planned. 
We defined preventable using the consensus definition developed by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, ARC, uh, from their prevention quality indicators. And so uh, preventable admission rates is more so measuring differences in access to care or quality of outpatient care in the community. It's a measure of population health. So these indicators are used for county health rankings and a bunch of other population health programs. It's also a really key tool for community health needs assessments. So we use the measure that's been used repeatedly in in public reporting and payment programs. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that clarification. Now, as I was looking at the paper, your focus is on the the South, the Southern part of the United States. But uh, as you note in the paper, we're missing a lot of the data for states for some critical elements. And, you know, we don't typically talk a lot about data and methods on a health policy. But here, if if we're going to try to understand this phenomenon, just having kind of what I would think of as fairly basic data would be uh, useful. But here it's missing. Can you say a little bit about where you didn't have the data that might have been uh the right kind of data or the best data to answer the question you had in front of you? Yeah. So surprisingly, we weren't able to you know, use every state in the South. So this U.S. Census this is about, depending on how you def- define it, 15 to 17 states. We looked at 15 states that met the broad definition of the South based on that definition. Six of these states, uh, which included Alabama, Louisiana, where I am, Oklahoma, Tennessee, uh, Texas, and Virginia, they didn't consistently report their hospital discharge data, which is what we used, uh, which was the state inpatient databases. And we looked at between 2015 and 2017. Of the nine remaining states, four of them, which included South Carolina, West Virginia, Maryland, and Delaware, they either didn't report data on ethnicity, uh, the unique hospital identifiers that we actually needed to link up these databases, Uh, uh, and actually the point of origin of a hospitalization or zip codes. So we needed all of these data estimates to actually do the calculations. So once we actually did all of the merging, uh, we were only able to really focus on six states, which included Kentucky, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, and North Carolina. And as you can immediately tell, these are states that are demographically different in some cases, right? So Mississippi and Florida uh, definitely have different histories and also different populations. And so what we did was we tried to adjust for some of the differences in those populations when we calculated these heart failure admission rates. Yeah. So, I mean, you used, I guess, what we'd call sort of standard techniques to account for the fact that you didn't have everything you needed. But I do think it's just an important story, even separate from your findings about how many of the states just didn't have the information you might have wanted. Well, let's let's move to the findings. You focused on the cost of preventable admissions and the the, particularly the cost associated with disparities in those. can you just give us sort of a top level of the findings from the research? Yeah. So we found over $600 million in annual excess spending across all of the groups that we looked at. Uh, and these are specifically attributed to the Medicare program. So we could have included Medicaid, commercial payers, but we really focused on Medicare. And then we the, the headline is we, we found nearly half of the excess admissions uh, in within this cost for Black beneficiaries were attributable to the disparity. Nearly 15% uh, was for Hispanic beneficiaries and nearly 51% for American Indian and Alaska Native. And we used a reference group for white as white beneficiaries rates, uh, which had similar demographic characteristics. And so 
I guess the main takeaway is that this equates to millions of dollars in excess spending for the Medicare program due to disparities in outcomes. The one other thing that I would want to mention is that we made some measurement choices here, which actually apply to all disparities research, where we're choosing a reference group. Uh, in this case, Asian and Pacific Islander population, we weren't able to actually disaggregate these distinct groups, unfortunately. But they actually had the lowest uh, heart failure admission rate, and we could have chosen them as a benchmark, but we decided to choose the white beneficiaries as a, a reference group because we wanted our estimates to be more comparable to previous estimates, and because of the historical and present-day contrasts and opportunities and resources due to racism in the South, as well as other parts of the United States. Uh, and then another, we could have also used the average rate across all groups. So there are multiple ways of doing this, but the takeaway here, and we did some sensitivity analyses, is that we would still find disparities regardless of the, in some cases, the disparities would be larger. In some cases, it might be slightly smaller. But either way, uh, the differences are, are, are large enough that it would lead to excess costs. And as a reminder, all of these are preventable under our definition. Yeah. So first of all, I just want to thank you for highlighting the thinking that went into the reference group. As you, I'm sure, know, often people sort of default to white as the comparison group, the reference group, and don't give it much thought. And it doesn't mean it's the wrong answer, but it's not the right answer if you haven't thought about why. And so I appreciate you going through the variety of options that you had there and explaining uh, your choice. Uh, before we uh, take a break, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit about what to do about this, I do want to just, because it is a somewhat complex concept, I do want to spend a moment with you on this notion of the share of preventable admissions due to disparities. So you have uh, the full universe of admissions that were preventable. And how do you say, and these are the share that are due to disparities? Good question. So the this goes back to the reference group. If we saw that for certain groups, for Black beneficiaries, for Hispanic and American and Indian Alaska Native beneficiaries, their adjusted heart failure admission rate was higher than for white beneficiaries. So we calculated the difference based on the assumption if they had the same rate of as white beneficiaries, and if they had the same rate, what would be the savings? Uh, well, I really want to talk about sort of what we know about where these disparities come from and what we can do about them. We'll have that conversation after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Anderson about the cost of disparities in preventable heart failure hospitalizations in the southern region of the United States. Uh, before the break, we got the top line findings, tens of millions of dollars in excess spending associated with disparities around preventable admissions. At the introduction of the episode, I mentioned some information from the American Hospital Association that talks about some of the structural factors in the health system and outside of healthcare that can lead to the disparities that you uh, measure in your paper. Uh, what can you tell us about how health and healthcare uh, exist and function in the southern region of the United States uh, that, first of all, led to your inquiry in the paper, and second of all, it might uh, contribute to the disparities that you documented? 
One of the reasons we focused on the South is many people don't know, some of the adjoining states in the South have been called the heart failure belt, which also overlaps with a region known as the black belt, which is known for its fertile soil and was also used for cotton and tobacco production and forced labor plantations. And so we were really interested in how some of that you know, very present structural racism in the United States may actually extend out into the future, into today. And we know that the South is racially and ethnic diverse and home to a large share of the nation's people of color. Uh, Black Americans in the South account for a greater share of the Southern population compared to other parts of the United States. Um, And we also know that the rates of things like diabetes and cancer are also uh, worse in the Southern region. Southerners are also more likely to be uninsured compared to individuals living in other parts of the country. Uh, We all know that the South has been slower to expand Medicaid. Most states in the South have not, except Louisiana and Arkansas, and I think more recently North Carolina is joining the group. We know that Medicaid and CHIP eligibility levels are more limited in the South compared to other regions. And among those states that I just mentioned that have expanded Medicaid, generally they had lower uninsurance rates to begin with compared to pre-2014. So there's lots of chronic illness in the South, um, and there's a lot of other demographic data that we could talk about when it comes to like uh, the outcomes um, that would contribute to this type of difference in terms of differences in opportunities and resources. So that's why we, we chose to focus on the South. So you find these, uh, these high costs. Of course, they're the health costs. You're measuring the financial cost of delivering services. The health costs to the population are profound. Um, what's your sense of what could be done, particularly if we're looking at what many would call the social drivers? Uh, but you referenced, of course, uh, the role of health insurance as well. When uh, when you think about the information you've uh, gathered and the findings of this study, where does it lead you? So as I said in the beginning, the preventable hospital admissions are really signals of serious access or performance problems in health systems and communities. And you know, heart failure has some really well-known screening, diagnostic, and treatment procedures. The, only, the problem is that it's inconsistently implemented or uh, there's lower uptake among Black, Hispanic, American Indian, and other you know, groups that we looked at in the study. What it takes to close those gaps really is about getting more of the right care at the right time uh, to the right people. And so there's an underutilization of guideline-directed care among these populations. So in the paper, we talked about a study that was cited, you know, using registry data where less than a quarter of, they found less than a quarter of Black patients with heart failure were actually receiving pharmacotherapies that they needed to manage their heart failure. So we know a lot about what interventions work to prevent and treat heart failure. And we know that these are the same interventions that work for everybody. The problem is that the strategies that are used might look slightly different to increase the uptake of those interventions. And those differences are based on the unique barriers that certain populations face on average. And it's that we're not overcoming those barriers. And many of those barriers we already know when it comes to transportation in certain areas. Um, One of the ones that we talked about in the uh, paper was pharmacy uh, deserts, which is, I think, a paper that was published here in Health Affairs, where in cities like Charlotte, North Carolina, Jacksonville, Memphis, they're disproportionately categorized as pharmacy deserts. So when it comes to low availability of pharmacies to begin with, the actual geographic accessibility of those pharmacies 
that is going to further exacerbate you know, disparities and other barriers that might exist. And so uh, because the United States has a history of racism and you know, codified racial hierarchy, I mean, it's been repeatedly mentioned about ra- racial segregation and neighborhood disinvestment and exclusionary zoning laws, especially in Southern urban areas, uh, you know, resources like good schools, clean water, safe neighborhoods, healthy foods, all of these things that are going to improve health and lead to thriving, um, you know, it's unequally uh, distributed across racial lines. And so until that situation is fixed, right, that we're going to continue to see these types of disparities. But what we can do in the meantime in the healthcare system is to try to stop, you know, actually contributing to the problem, right, with just in discrimination and actual treatment um, and actually trying to, you know, there is more of a movement now to address health-related social needs within the healthcare system. That is a stopgap in some ways because we're not addressing the upstream social determinants of health that I just mentioned, but it is something that can be done to try to stop the bleeding in the meantime. That's, uh, that, that, that's where we concluded on, on how to try to address some of these disparities is really in, improving the uptake of guideline-directed care addressing the social determinants of health, which will likely happen through public policy in the long term. And then also training providers, right, to try to address some of the mistreatment or lack of treatment that may be given to certain communities. Yeah, that seems really important. I mean, even though the origins of these problems are deep and longstanding and out, they uh, arise outside of the healthcare system, part of what you're saying is uh, even when you're just operating within the healthcare system, there are things you can do. They aren't going to solve everything, but they can mitigate some of the damage and they can address some of the disparities. And uh, it's not going to solve the whole problem, but it's better than not solving at all or pretending it's not there um, and just leaving it alone and saying, well, that's the, the origins of those problems aren't are doing so we don't have any part to play in addressing them. I don't think anyone wants to take that approach. So I I do think quantifying the burden is helpful in motivating change. It's only one aspect. It certainly doesn't lead to change immediately uh, and doesn't always lead to change, but it is part of the, the arsenal of arguments people can use for why it's important to do something about uh, the, the problems that uh, led us to this state. Well, as we come to a close, I do want to note you were a fellow in our Health Equity Fellowship for Trainees, the HEFT program here at uh, Health Affairs. Um, I doubt most of our listeners are familiar with it. I'm not going to ask you to give a total overview of of our program, but uh, I wonder if you could just say a word about the role that that fellowship played in uh, preparing this manuscript and getting you to a place where you're publishing it here in Health Affairs. The program had a great impact on getting this paper to where it is now. Um, first, you know, it was work that was unfunded, and I did this with a group of doctoral students at uh, in my department. Fantastic uh, group of students, and uh, it, I was matched through this program with a cardiologist, right, which really helped with me understand the clinical uh, aspects of of heart failure and the treatment. And so that was invalid and really invaluable. And I was lucky to get that matching and it led to a much more, you know, improved paper for me to have that clinical uh, analysis. 
And we also got some really great tips through the uh, matching with uh, the associate editor, uh, one of the associate editors at Health Affairs to try to craft the narrative here in a way that you know, policymakers could potentially you know, actually want to use or understand how this information is usable. So it was a really great experience. I, I, th I think the paper would would not have maybe gotten published or, or wouldn't have gotten to this stage because of, there's been so much refinement over the last two and a half years, actually, that we've done this work. Um, so it's, it's, it's been a really great experience. Well, I'm happy to hear that and happy that it led to the publication of this uh, manuscript and uh, the little small part that we played in that. Um, well, um, uh, Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for focusing on this critical issue, for sticking with the topic, even without funding, to find your way through the complex uh, data limitations and challenges, uh, for really an exceptional explanation of why this is important work and the results themselves uh, really do speak for themselves about the scale of uh, these disparities and the importance financially of addressing them, much less the humanitarian reasons for doing so. Uh, Dr. Anderson, thank you for being my guest today on Health Policy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about the Health Policy.